How's my financial health, Doc? Welcome to the Financial Literacy Podcast for healthcare professionals, where financial security and wealth topics are not a taboo. Welcome back to the show, everybody, and I'm your host, Vu Ketran, and it's a pleasure to welcome you back to How Is My Financial Health Doc podcast. Well, dear listeners, we now have a sponsor for this podcast. This episode is sponsored by another Emerge Doc. Dr. Fred Voon, who just came out with a new book called Your Inside Guide to the Emergency Department and How to Prevent Having to Go. We hear the same questions and complaints in waiting rooms coast to coast. The book answers them. People want to know how they can stay out of the emergency department and how to get seen and get out as quickly as possible. Dr. Voon takes 15 years of experience and puts it into this book that you will want to give to your family and friends. So he's giving away books to the first five Canadians that respond on his website, drvoon.ca. That's D-R-V-O-O-N dot C-A. And to every 50th Canadian until the promotion expires. Link is in the show notes. You can buy his book online, special order it, or at your local bookstore, or ask your local library to add it to their collection. Today we're going to talk about real estate and physicians. In fact, what we're going to talk about is why physicians like to invest in real estate. Maybe like is a very soft word. I should say why physicians love to invest in real estate. What is it about real estate that makes it so attractive for the medical professional community? And everybody that I talk to, whether it's colleague in family medicine, emergency medicine, or other specialties, everybody is invested in real estate. And I'm not just talking about investing in the primary residence. I'm talking about investing in all sorts of real estate investment, including flipping houses, which is something I've never learned how to do, but some of us do it. And so let's dive deep into our love with real estate. This podcast will be a little bit different. This time around, I'm being interviewed by my good friend, Bob, and Bob will be in the driver's seat and I will be answering questions, sort of give you my insight as to why I love real estate and why physicians love real estate. This is my take on it and Bob's take on it. You may have a different opinion, but I think we will all agree that these are probably the major factors. So here we go. Let's listen to Bob. Good morning, everybody. It's Bob here. I am in enviable seat of being able to uh, interview our esteemed host, uh, Vu. We are turning things around a little bit today because Vu has a wealth of real estate experience that I think would be great for him to share with us and share his perspective. Again, I am a colleague and friend of Vu's. Uh, we've known each other for quite some time. Uh, we both are uh, emergency physicians and we both uh, have an interest in finance and finance education. Without much further ado, we're going to uh, bring Vu on. Vu, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you, Bob, for uh, having me. Wonderful. Now, I hope you'll get a sense uh, today of um, what it's like to be in the hot seat, right? It's basically, it's complete role reversal for you, Vu, because normally we're physicians asking questions or you're a host asking questions. Now you have to see what it's like to be the patient answering the questions well actually okay. i feel i like feel like the medical student being pimp right now <laughs> a little bit of that too okay so i think the topic today is uh is real estate 
Um, and, uh, and we're just going to go over like a broad overview. You know, we're not going to go into the nitty gritty, although maybe we'll get into some, some, some serious details. And, but we think it's, um, you know, it's an interesting topic that, uh, you know, society is very much invested in and certainly in the healthcare field, you know, real estate investment is common. Of course, we talk about our, our primary residence, which is, you know, the main real estate investment that the majority of people have or strive to have. And of course, we'll touch on other real estate investments outside of the primary residence. But if you can just just highlight, why do you think so many people, certainly, you know, in and outside of the healthcare field are, are allured and interested in real estate as an investment? You know, Bob, that is a great question. And it's something that I've been thinking about uh, for quite a, a long time now. And like you say, you know, a lot of healthcare professionals and non-healthcare professionals like to invest in real estate. And I, I think there are a few reasons. One, you know, it comes from really from our, uh, our ancestors, right? Uh, we all needed a, a roof to cover our heads, a place to call the home a shelter. And so it's ingrained into us that, you know, once we become adults, we have to do the adult and responsible thing, which is uh, provide a, a roof over your head for you, yourself and your family. And since you're doing that, it's a good financial investment and tool to invest in real estate. And so that's why we have our primary residence. That I think that explains the primary re- residence. But why do we go beyond that and invest in uh, investment real estate? So rental properties and whatnot, or some people like to flip homes. That's, you know, rental properties is not the only way to play in the real estate arena. So the other reasons I think that people like to invest in real estate is uh, how simple it is, the concept, right? The concept of I'm going to buy a unit, a house, uh, I'm going to mortgage it. And I'm going to make money by renting it out. And hopefully, uh, if I have enough money coming in, minus the money going out, so paying the mortgage, paying the land transfer tax, paying the, the property tax, paying the electrical bills, and the insurance that when I minus all that, I still come up positive. Uh, and I make money off the rental, but also hopefully from the growth of the value of the house. So those are very simple concepts that everybody can understand. Not everybody understands equity, bonds, stocks, REITs, you know, the market is so complicated. A lot of people say, that's not for me, but real estate is fairly simple. And a third reason I think we like real estate is because at the end of the day, we like to touch and feel things, right? And so if I buy a condo unit or a house, I can feel it, I can step into it, I can touch it, I can smell it. In fact, I could even lick it if I wanted to lick the walls, right? But if I'm buying a stock or a, a mutual fund, well, it's a, it's a bunch of numbers on, uh, on a paper that says I own X units of a, of a mutual fund. And I, I can't really see it. I can't really touch it. I don't know what it is. It's sort of foreign to me. And so a lot of people may not feel comfortable with that, but they may feel more comfortable with something that they can touch and see. And finally, I don't know if you remember this, Bob, but back in the maybe 2000s, uh, there was an HSBC commercial uh, that was you know promoting HSBC. And in one of the clips, there was an interracial marriage between a Caucasian male and a Chinese lady. And the, the grandmother, who's a Chinese grandmother, was telling this couple, I know, some, uh, some marital tips. And what she was saying is, we invest in real estate. We don't build more land, right? And so it's the idea that that land is scarce and the land will always go up, value will always go up. And it's something that people always need. Like, for example, if you think about the pandemic, everybody everybody needs a haircut, but we can't go to the barber, but we all need a haircut. And so this land is one of those things that, you know, over time, you, you, you need to live somewhere, you need a shelter. So you're either buying it or you're renting it. 
And so it's one of those things that there will be a perpetual need. And I think because of all those re reasons, intuitively, people like real estate, especially people in healthcare and physicians. Great, great. So that's that's very helpful, Vu. Um, so you mentioned there, that's an interesting your HSBC analogy there. It's like uh, Mark Twain's famous quote, buy land, they're not making any more of it. Same, same concept. Exactly. I think, um, I think HSBC took it from there, maybe. <laughs> let me, let me throw you another quote and, and take, and, and I want to hear your, your view on this. This is, uh, I want you to listen to this. Real estate cannot be lost or stolen, nor can it be carried away. Purchased with common sense, paid for in full, and managed with reasonable care, it is about the safest investment in the world. That was said by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a U.S. president in the 30s and 40s. What do you think, Hu? Do you agree with FDR? Uh, I agree with the first part. It is safe. You, you can take it with you. Or if you can't take it with you, at least you can sit on it and have someone remove you from, from the said land. But the last part, the safest, I'm not sure uh, because, you know, we all witnessed 2008. I'm, I'm sure that FDR did not predict 2008 because had he seen that, he would have been, uh, probably would have changed that sentence. But that being said, uh, that being said, I, I think 2008 was a fabric of human, human greed, right? Uh, it, it wasn't, it doesn't speak to the real estate itself. It spoke to human greed. So if you take away that portion where they had the, the fabricated financial vehicles that made such a mess, real estate, I, at the end of the day, is still a very good investment. Is it always safe? Probably not. I think in Toronto, we also saw a, a housing bubble as well. I, I was too young to understand that. But so back in 1980s in Toronto, we suffered through that. And in 2008, globally, and especially in the U.S., we suffered through that. So uh, in my mind, it is a very good investment. I'm not sure I would call it totally safe. Great. So, so why don't we go through some of the um, advantages? What are some of the benefits of owning real estate? I guess both, and you know, at some point we'll have to divide away the primary residence versus real estate investment, but just an overview, I guess. Um, what are some of the benefits? Uh, as mentioned earlier, one of the benefit is it's very tan is very tangible, right? I have a piece of paper that says I own this house or I own this land. I can touch it. I can see it. I can see how big it is. Uh, so there's there's something really valuable about being very tangible. The second thing that is a good advantage in real estate, again, depending on the market where you are, like if you're in GTA, you're in Montreal, you're in, you know, the Vancouver area, or you're in any of these big cities, then it the, the price, the value of the homes rises, uh, and it rises steadily until it crashes, but the volatility is not the same as in the market. So I don't know if you saw today or yesterday, so GameStop, uh, GameStop went from $450 down to $50.20 yesterday, uh, all within a month, right? Whereas you don't see that type of volatility with the housing market. And the value doesn't drop by that much unless we're talking about a, a bubble. The third thing about real estate is this sense of comfort, right? I'm coming home. Uh, it's, it, I have a, I have a roof above my head. It's my home. It's my house. I'm, I'm king of my castle. So regardless of the financial aspect of it, it, it's, it's somewhere where I can, I can call my own castle and, and that goes beyond the financial explanation. And I, I believe the fourth advantage is that, uh, it is something that you can leave behind, uh, to your loved ones. Uh, it's a, it's an inheritance especially in a primary residence uh, in Canada, at least there's no taxation on the capital growth of the home. And so it is a good uh, vehicle investment uh, as an estate plan. And so for those reasons, I think we see this as a huge opportunity to invest in real estate as opposed to the other things, right? The other things are the stock market 
or uh, investing in oil and gas or investing in a business, right? Because a business is a little bit more active. You actually have to work inside the business. Whereas in real estate, uh, there's not much work in it other than maintaining the house. You know, all those are, all those are, you know, meaningful reasons. You know, I also like a couple other things about real estate. Now, from a, you know, from another philosophical point of view, it's, you know, you've, you've talked about this on your podcast. It's, it's a forced way of savings. It's forced savings. Now, whether you do that in an insurance product or in monthly deductions from your income to fund your RRSP or TFSA or paying down the mortgage principal, it's, it's a form of forced savings. You're not going to say, you know, I'm going to tra- take this trip to Maui and not pay my mortgage. Most people wouldn't say that. So it requires you to pay down some principal every month and increase your equity and, and long-term wealth. So that's one of the nice things. Uh, again, it doesn't have to be exclusive to real estate, but real estate is the epitome of that. So, so I think that's a, that's a strong plus for real estate. You know, I think the other thing is organically, like you said, there's like a business has some volatility, you know, real estate, it's a supply demand thing. You know, as long as, you know, people keep moving to cities and keep living in cities and the population keeps growing worldwide, there will, there will be, you know, more, more demand for, for, for real estate. And I think one of the other aspects that's, that's, you know, perhaps risky, but perhaps, makes the gains in real estate so much more powerful is the idea of leveraging the fact that you know it's it's very easy to take a loan you don't have to pay for the entire let's say how toronto housing prices the average house is nine hundred thousand or so you don't have to put that all down you 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 pay let's say 20 percent or less down and you borrow the rest so even though you're you're making you're only making let's say a hundred eighty thousand dollar investment your you have an asset that's worth nine hundred thousand that's growing right, and the rate of growth, whether it's you know four percent or six percent or stock market or real estate, they're all going to you know approximate each other to a certain degree over time. But you're getting to have a much bigger asset than if you put one hundred eighty thousand in the market. So so I think uh, leveraging and then and then is is a is a very you know important aspect. Now you you mentioned it about how how. In, in 2008, leveraging was an issue, and we can we can touch on that maybe a bit a bit uh, more later because there was over leveraging. People borrowed too much at these low rates, and then they couldn't refinance at higher rates. And perhaps that's a situation we're in now, where rates are historically so low now. Real estate prices are so so astronomically high because of that. It, who knows what's where things are going to be in two or five years. But I guess that's also a, a theoretical risk when you when you own real estate, um, and uh, and I think for a residential property that makes the most sense of all to me because, like you mentioned, that's a t- you hold that for a long period of time and you get a tax free gain at the end. You pay no tax on the income you make and the appreciation on your primary residence. So uh, the you know so the forced savings, the leveraging, and the and the tax-free gain makes certainly a primary residence a very compelling, um, a very compelling asset to have. I wanna I wanna come back to the point of leveraging because also leveraging is is you know people think of mortgage as a mortgage. Right, it, it, they, they, there's a specific name to mortgage, and everybody, ex- except maybe children, but everybody would understand what a mortgage means. But you rightfully said it; it is leveraging, meaning I only put down twenty percent as a down payment to gain a hundred percent, which means I've now used some money to put in a deposit to have another four times that amount. Right. And so that's what leveraging is. And we use the word mortgage. But it's funny how people don't equate other investments that leverage the same way they see mortgages. So as an example, if someone wanted to invest in options, uh, Forex, 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 foreign exchange, or futures, they can go to a broker and have the exact same leverage, right? They can put 20,000 down 
and the broker will give them a hundred thousand for for him or her to invest in options and futures. So that's still leveraging, but we have a hard time understanding that concept. But yet we have a very easy time understanding mortgage, and mortgage is just leveraging. So it, it comes back to the fact that we as adults are very very comfortable with the idea of real estate and real estate investment and mortgages because it's simple, it's easy to understand. But when we use the exact same concept for another form of asset, I'm like, uh, I don't know what you're talking about. So it, for some reason, humans and adults are very, very, very comfortable with real estate, which makes it a, a one of the first asset that they, they would want to invest in. Well, perhaps, perhaps it, it really it goes to the underlying value, like you said, you know, they're, they're not making any more land, you know, there is an underlying value, you know, no matter what happens, there will be always some value, you know, a, a, a company can go bankrupt, uh, foreign exchange option, certainly 80, 90% of them expire worthless in a period of time. So, so the level of risk is, is, is stratospherically higher when you're, when you're borrowing to buy currency options. I know this is something I did uh, quite some time ago. So, so, so I, I understand the risk of currency option and I wouldn't recommend that as a, as a good long-term uh, investment unless you really know what you're doing. And even then it's mostly gambling. So I think it tells us about the relative safety that society and banks and lending institutions are, are open to it. But I would argue that it is much safer to borrow on a mortgage than uh, to borrow, you know, uh, to borrow through a mortgage on 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 a on a real estate asset than uh, than to borrow on options or even or even you know a basket of stocks that you own, you know, using that as leverage. You know, obviously that's less risky than the options leveraging, but nonetheless, there's more risk than than a mortgage on a house. So. Um, but I hear you that we shouldn't necessarily be frightened by the idea of debt. But I do think it's prudent to try to minimize debt whenever we can. And, um, and that's why people, are, people enjoy paying off their mortgage and take a lot of pride in that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I think it comes back to the behavioral science of investment, right? Back to your point, you know, why do we feel so comfortable investing in a real estate? Because, you know, in comparison to all the other options out there and alternative out there, it is it is very safe because, again, unless you have, you know, a bubble like 1980 or 2008, it is a very safe uh, asset to to have. And also the, the comfort of having four walls and having a roof. Uh, is that comfort is, is is priceless, and so the the behavior uh, aspect behind the investment explains uh, a huge part of why real estate uh, is a very good asset that most people like to uh, to invest in. I'm gonna since you brought that up, I'm gonna bring it throw out another quote. Here it is. This is Anthony Trollope, a, a novelist about real estate. It is a comfortable feeling to know that you stand on your own ground. Land is about the only thing that can't fly away. Oh, that is so good. <laughs> I love it. I love it. You're okay, all about so quotes today, Bob. I'll, I'll listen, all, all about quotes and all about movies, because you know what? You know, in, in essence, all these investments are about allowing us to do the things we want to do and to have security to be able to live our lives uh, the way we want to live them. And, and they're just, they're means to an end. So, so on that, on that note, I'm going to, I want to touch base about some of the downsides of real estate and um, what are some of the risks. And you, you highlighted the 2008, 2009 financial crisis, not so long ago. Um, and, and you did highlight that there were excesses uh, in the financial markets that were created by Wall Street bankers to these complicated collateralized debt obligations and subprime mortgages that are really hard to understand. But basically, you had a situation where there were very, very low interest rates in the early 2000s. And, those and, those, and, and a lot of people that really shouldn't have been buying houses were buying houses. And some of those mortgages came due and interest rates were higher at that point. 
Um, and the banks were taking all these mortgages and putting them all together and saying, well, look here, invest in this secure investment. You got real estate behind it. And once housing prices fell and you had these, these, these assets that were just exponentially magnified by these crazy derivative structures that were created, it created a cascade of uh, falling uh, real estate prices, assets that became worthless, and then and then a financial crisis where banks went bankrupt, and and the government had to bail out banks and the economy, and there was a, a, a large, uh, fairly long real estate collapse over over several years, from let's say easily 2007 to you know 2010. That is that is a lesson, and you know we should talk about some of the downsides of real estate, and then just your your opinion on whether you think something like that can happen again sometime in the in the near to medium future. Yeah, I well, you mentioned it, right? We are ripe uh, for that type of scenario. Let's talk about you know the hot markets. So GTA, for example, Montreal, Vancouver, astronomical. Uh, housing prices. To be honest, the house that I live in right now, if I were to buy it today, I wouldn't be able to afford it because it's just way too expensive. You know, if you're thinking about the the, the new professionals coming out, and I'm talking about professionals, even with a double income, it may be hard just to get your hands on, on a house. And uh, And I don't know if you heard the news yesterday, it is the first time that an average home in Toronto has peaked over $1 million. The average, I'm not talking about the extreme, but the average has peaked over a million dollars. So if you that's really an of- amazing thing, Vu. That is, that is, that is incredible to know that if you're starting out, the average in the GTA is, is a million dollars for a home. That's, that, that's really, um, that's really challenging for, for, for a lot of people. And that's, and that's disheartening and frightening, right? If you're starting out. So yeah. yeah. Please go ahead. Yeah, no. So it's frightening and, and it's all almost not attainable. Now, I, I'm saying this here in our Canadian context, but, you know, if you came from Hong Kong, you would say, well, that's nothing. <laughs> because in Hong Kong, you get a shoebox for um, almost $2 million, uh, Canadian, right? It's, it's a question of perspective. But from a Canadian perspective, it, it seems almost crazy. And so you're you're marrying that with the fact that we have really really low interest rates now, uh, mortgage rates. So yesterday I was li- I was driving and listening on the news that some independent broker was able to offer you one point three nine percent. I've never heard of that before in my life. So I immediately drove to my uh, to my bank and I say, Hey, uh, how much am I paying right now? I'm paying two point seven six percent. I'm like, holy moly, that's a huge jump, right? It's uh, almost a 1.4% difference. What can I do? So we were talking about the different solutions I may have. Uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm, I'm locked into a five-year fixed. But back to your point, we are at historical lows in, in rates. And so let's just say three years down the road, COVID no longer is with us and everything's flourishing. And the government says, okay, it's now time to raise the rates again. And so all you have to do is to raise from 1.39 to 2 or 2.6, like I am now, and that bunch of people will suffer the consequences. It will be financially hard just to you know, double that, that interest rate. So can that happen uh, in the future? Yes. Will it happen? Who knows? Uh, but if it does happen, uh, it cannot happen overnight, right? Uh, you can imagine going from a 1.39 to a 2.7, uh, that will break a lot of banks. And so are we, uh, are we in, in danger of that? Yes. So coming back to the disadvantages, one of them is obviously you always have to watch on whether the interest rate will go up or not and whether you can meet the, the, the commitment of your, of your mortgage. So there's always a risk there. But the second um, disadvantage or the cons is, like you say, you are now committed, right? So you are committed for 25 years if you amortize for 25 years. So it's, it's in one way a blessing that you are forced to save, 
but in another way, if we overdo it. So if I'm, uh, I have a mortgage of let's say 800,000 versus a mortgage of 2 million versus a mortgage of 3 million, because I want to go big, uh, you either go big or go home. So if I choose to go big and now get a mortgage of 3 million, I am on the hook for 3 million for the next 25 years, right? And so that mortgage, that payment, monthly payment is, is, um, is, is humongous. And so when you're committed to that type of amount for that amount of time, you are now uh, house rich, life poor. You can't, you can't really afford to go on vacation or you can't afford to do other things that you want to do because you are now tied to this commitment. So have to be really careful in how you choose that. When you, when you take a mortgage of that amount, you have to really think what are the other opportunity costs that I'm foregoing by having such a big mortgage. The third uh, con that I would say is uh, when we purchase a house, uh, let's just say a primary residence, right? We, we have to think not just the mortgage, we have to think the insurance on it, the property tax, and then the maintenance fees on it, because every year something's going to break. Uh, I just I just fixed my roof <laughs> just before the winter, and I can tell you it was quite expensive. And then you have to replace the windows, and you have to replace the furnace, and, and then the driveway is cracking, and, and so on, and so on, and so on. And so it's like a car. You buy a car, you have to put gas in it. You have to do, uh, you know, quarterly maintenance and then the battery dies and then you have to change the, the tires. You have to get winter tires, but now you put that in the, uh, four, uh, 10, 20 times, uh, the amount because it's the value of the house is so much bigger. So the bigger house you have, uh, the more of those things you need to, to think about. And finally, uh, this is more coming back to chores. You know, you have a house, uh, you have to clean the house, uh, clean the bathroom. You know, I'm not saying that if you don't have a house, you don't clean the bathroom, but I'm just saying there's so many other things that you have to think about when you do purchase real estate. And that's just primary residence. We haven't even talked about investment real estate. Right. So we're going to, we're going to, we're probably going to get to that very, very shortly investment real estate and we'll, and we'll discuss that. I, I agree. Getting back to your earlier points, I agree with you that there is some risk of another bubble being created with these elevated prices. I'd like to think that, you know, the world and world financial institutions and banks have learned some of their lessons. seems like in Canada, we're better off. I don't think we have the credit crisis or impending credit crisis that happened in 2008, 2009. And just looking at mortgages now, they actually, it's interesting how they do it. Even though rates are so low, they're sort of basing your payments on a perceived higher rate. So what they're saying is if, if you want a $250,000 mortgage, they're really saying, even though they might give you a rate of 1.6 or 1.7, they're, they're really saying, let's base it on a rate of 2.4, but you're only gonna pay 1.65 and the rest will be added to your principal. You'll pay more principal now. So we're, your monthly payment will be not so different, about the same as a higher rate, just more of it now will go to principal, which is good for you. So hopefully they've learned some lessons and they're creating a scenario where they're not doing these subprime people that can't afford it or are, are buying homes more than they can afford. Uh, so I see that, that I think there's less risk of a, of a massive collapse like we had in 2008, 2009. Um, but there is still some risk. I agree with you. I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, um, like you were mentioning, they're, they're doing sensitivity stressing right now, right? So interest rate is 1.39, whatever it is. And let's stress test you to see if we were at 2.5, would you still be able to manage the mortgage? And if the answer is yes, then they'll lend it to you, right? That's another mechanism. And um, Bob, correct me if I'm wrong, are they doing that only for... Um, income real estate, or are they doing also that for primary uh, residents? It seems to me they're doing that for both, you know, because um, when you play around with the rates, if you go onto any mortgage calculator, you'll notice that, that when you lower the rate by, let's say, 10 basis points, let's say even, or 20, but, you know, let's say you go from 1.7 to 1.6, and let's say you lower it by... 10 basis points, it's about a 7% decrease. You think your payments go down by about 7%. Uh, 
but your payments might go down by 1% or 2% your monthly payments, a very small difference. Meaning what they're saying is, you know, we want to make sure you can, you can, you know, we're going to let you pay a lot of principal. We're not going to reduce your monthly amount because that's going to make you think you're, you're richer than you are. You can afford more than you can. And, and we're just going to allow you to be safe and pay more principal. So, so that's what it tells me. And it seems to be the case that they're basically basing rates on, on some higher future rate, which I think is a very prudent thing to do. So it's tougher to get a mortgage now, um, uh, it's a little bit tougher, you know, uh, I guess all, all in all, uh, despite the low rates. Um, so, and I think that's a safe thing. I think that's a safe thing for, for everyone. So I am hoping that, you know, we've learned our lessons and, and we avoid the, the massive kind of collapse. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm hopeful. Okay, so we, t we touched before about, um, about other real estate investments. I know you've had, you've had a fair bit of experience, um, you know, and if, if you're open to telling us that some of the kind of real estate assets that, that, you've, that you've been involved in uh, and, uh, and maybe give us an overview of the different types of real estate investments that are out there other than our primary residence. Um, uh, to give people a, and give people a flavor of what the what the opportunities and challenges are in in um, pursuing these type of uh, of investments. Yeah, no, absolutely. So everybody understands real estate as it pertains to the primary residence. I think that's easy to understand. Uh, the other part that people are easy to understand is also investment real estate. Uh, but before I dive into the different types, I, I just want to maybe just put it into broad categories, right? So there's real estate investment, which I call active real estate investment. And there's also passive real estate investment. So passive, as their name says it, I buy a, a, a real estate or a real estate asset and I just let it go. There's not much work in it. I mean, there's some work, but there's not much work in it. Whereas in active real estate uh, investment, there, there is uh, time, effort, sweat dedicated to it. So if I'm talking about active real estate investment, I'm talking about the primary residence. Again, uh, I have to maintain the house. I have to fix the plumbing, fix the toilet, et cetera. There is the investment real estate where if I have condo units or I have another single dwelling home, uh, and I'm renting it out to my tenant. If there's an issue, I have to go deal with it. I have to deal with the air conditioning. I have to deal with the, 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 the sewage pipe, whatever it is. So I have to put effort and time into fixing it for my tenant. That's another type of active. Another active type of real estate investments are what we call the, the flipping. So people buy homes that are a little bit run down. They buy it at a discount price. They put money into it, they put time, they put investment into it to fix it up and then resell it back. And so as you can understand, that's very, very active. As a physician, as a healthcare professional, I'm not sure that I would go out and flip some homes. That being said, I know of a few colleagues who does that uh, and they're physicians, but this is really not my cup of tea. And then you've got the other, which are more passive. So the passive one uh, are there's this product on the market in, in the GTA uh, that is really owning income real estate, but in a very, very passive way. Uh, I'm not gonna name their name here because I, I don't want uh, any, any issues with that, but that's, that does exist where you actually own rental real estate property, but you are 100% hands-free. The other type of passive is what we call REITs. So real estate income trust. So really what that is, is you invest your money with a company and that company pulls money from all investors and they invest in real estate and they become the active managers. So a lot of these are in, for example, industrial uh, real estate, uh, commercial real estate, multifamily apartments, 
and they'll they'll have assets of millions and millions of asset under management and homes and they manage all that actively uh, and you invest in their management and then every year they give you a dividend so a return of eight to nine sometimes up to 10 percent and that is not correlated to the market as you can understand the market can go up up and down and GameStop can go up and down but if you're invested in a REIT you will get your 8%, 9% year after year, as long as they, they make money. So that's another way to invest in real estate. So the third type is what we call mixed uh, mortgage investment corporations. So it is a really passive way of investing in real estate. And in fact, you're not investing really in real estate or in land. What you're investing is, is you're investing in a company that provide second or third mortgage to home buyers, or you are investing in a uh, company that loans money to a developer. And typically, these are for uh, what they call soft cost. So in, in real estate development, and by all means, I'm not an expert, but from what I understand, there's soft cost and soft cost is the cost associated with you know, uh, the application for zoning and rezoning, uh, the application for, uh, sorry, the, the expense associated with the sales, associated with the marketing, et cetera, et cetera. And, and these mix also play in what they call mezzanine lending, which is not the primary lending because the primary lending comes from the big banks, but then they have other costs that they need to pay that the big banks are not willing to support. So they have to get their money elsewhere through these what we call mezzanine lending. So there are companies that lend to these developers. And what you're doing is you're investing in these companies via a MIC. So many types of uh, real estate investment, some of them are very, very active, and some of them are very passive. And so those are the, the different types that exist in the market. I am sure there are many, many more types that I have not even come across because, you know, the only limit is the limit of the human imagination. So I'm sure there's some other types of real estate investment that exists out there that if you really wanted to look for them, you'll probably find them. I think that's a really nice overview of you. And I like the way, and I like the way how you broke that down into active and passive. And I think that's probably a really important distinction, certainly for, for healthcare providers, because, you know, like really in essence, you know, our most important asset that we have is time and, you know, active real estate management, as you've mentioned, you know, sounds like can often take a, a lot of time. There are ways to mitigate that. So you can buy, you can, you can hire a management company to run the property, and that's and that's a reasonable thing to do in many situations. And they charge you a certain percentage, perhaps of rents or a certain fixed amount, uh, and they can take care of part of the part of the responsibilities. You know, like calling a plumber, calling an electrician to all the responsibilities, like finding new tenants and so on and so forth. But when you have to manage things yourself, you know, th that's, that's, a, that's a time commitment and it takes us away. It's, it's a, well, the concept you've introduced in the past is a, it's an opportunity cost. It takes us away from the other things that we want to do, whether that's work and generate income in our primary work or, or spend time with family or do the things we want to do in our leisure time. So, so there is a cost to active real estate management. And I think it's nice the way, the way you highlighted that. Yeah, with, with, with REITs, you mentioned they're not correlated. The, the only thing I'm going to add is that, you know, there's still a risky investment, as we've seen over the last year or so. A lot of REITs have gone down in value, certainly the ones that are focusing on shopping malls and, 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 and office buildings where, where uh, you know, there are a lot of risks now. And many, many companies will decide to just keep their workers at home and not renew some of their leases and, and, and work from home may be an ongoing concept. So, so some of them have had to cut their dividends. So these dividends are not necessarily 100% secure nor are the value of, of the share price and their inherent assets. So, but I agree with you, REITs are you know, generally not correlated to the S&P 500 for sure. They move in a different way. And that's a healthy part of, of, you know, of having a diversified portfolio. So, uh, but I like the way you divided that into active versus passive. Uh, for me, 
I'd, I'd want to, I personally want to stay away from active invest, active management, at least at this point, I might change my mind down the road just because, you know, I feel like my time is sort of precious right now. And, uh, and it would be a lot, it would be another thing for me to take on, but, but certainly if you have a knack and a skill and perhaps know how to do some of the contracting work, if you can put up drywall, if you can paint, if you can do trim, if you can fix a toilet, you know, then albeit, I think, I think that's an important, like if you have those skills or want to learn those skills and invest in real estate, I think those go hand in hand. I think you will do much better in real estate if you understand how to fix things, whether you choose to do it yourself or not. I, I, can, I can do an LP, you know, with my eyes closed, uh, but I can't change a doorknob. I have no clue how to change a doorknob. And so I, I definitely do not want to be an active real estate uh, investor, but unfortunately I am, or fortunately I am. So when I, when I invested in real estate at the time, uh, much younger and less white hair, I didn't, I didn't think about all this. And so I, I invested in real estate thinking like, oh, if they don't build more land. I should just you know, invest in it. It will go up, which is true in my case. I mean, the real estate market in Toronto has been really good. But coming back to, you know, time is the only true asset we have. And the other one that we have uh, that we don't really think about really, but we should, is peace of mind. So I'll give you an example. I have a, a real estate in downtown Toronto. I don't live in Toronto. I live in the suburb. And it's rented to a tenant. And one, one day I was in Banff. I was speaking at a conference in Banff. And uh, my my tenant texts me and says the the ceiling just just dropped to the to the floor in the middle of the dining room because there was water coming down, and I'm speaking in Banff at a conference and I wasn't going to be coming home for the next two days, and so I'm trying to manage in between presentations this email this incident happening. I'm calling my my handyman who I know very well, but. Uh, he couldn't go in at this hour. He couldn't go in on that date. The tenant couldn't be there on this time at that date. And so I spent two days, you know, stressing over that. And on my way home during the flight from Calgary to Toronto, I was just a mess thinking, oh my God, at the moment I touch ground in Pearson, I have to drive to this tenant and get everything done, which I did. It was 11 o'clock at night. I had to drive there and meet my, my handyman. Uh, and and get the issue fixed, and it took a week to fix it, but it was so stressful while trying to deal with all that. And when I first invested in real estate, I I never imagined that I would have to do something like this. And so, it, if if it's just one property, you may say, fine, you can live with the occasional stress. But if you decide to really jump into it and invest in real estate the same way you invest in, I don't know, mutual funds or, or, or ETFs and whatnot, you're investing for the long run. Do you just want to have one ETF or do you want to have many? And so if you're thinking, I want to have many and I want to invest in real estate, then you may potentially have four, five, six properties in the long run over the time. And at that time, can you do it or do you want to do it? You may, you may just at that point say, let's just hire a property manager to deal with all that, right? Because time and peace of mind is so valuable. <laughs> People don't recognize that until they, they lose it. Well, that, that's great. And thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Uh, thanks for sharing that, uh, that ceiling leak story. Um, I mean, I think that's, that's a perfect example of, of some of the challenges, you know, with, uh, with uh, active real estate management. So um, I wanted to just get back and, and like, you know, take the perspective of someone that's, uh, that's young, starting out in their 20s or 30s, and thinking about perhaps just even buying their primary residence or thinking about investing in, in broader real estate, some of the more active things that, that, you've, that you've mentioned. Are there, any, are there any sort of pearls or tips that you would give a young investor in real estate that you wish you had had when you were that age? One of the tips that I have that I learned from a book Nobody told me this, but I learned from a book. 
And I, I thought at that time, uh, sure, what, what do I do? It, it's a great tip. Sure, I'll keep it in the back pocket. And now looking back, it is an amazing tip uh, 20 years later, now that I'm looking at it. And that is never sell your first real estate. Mm. Never sell your first real estate. I, I, I'm from Montreal, like you, Bob. I'm from Montreal. I moved here right after residency. Knew no one, landed in the middle of Toronto, uh, and I rented for about a year and a half. And at that time, you know, in 2000, it wasn't too bad. And uh, I worked my butt off and managed to pay student loan and managed to get some money to put on a down payment. At that time, how pro- housing prices wasn't too bad. So I, I put my money down and, and, and started uh, mortgaging uh, a home. As, uh, as uh, I got married and moved out of there, you know, one of the questions is, should I sell this property in downtown Toronto? And I, and I remember reading that book, that one sentence that says, do ne- never, ever sell your first real estate property. And so I decided not to. And to this day, I'm so happy I didn't. But here's why the book said that. And it's because, you know, you, you will never find that property at that price ever again. That's the first thing. The second thing is, if you've paid the money into it, there's equity going into that home. So now you've accumulated wealth already. You have, you now are in a less negative <laughs> net worth, right? Let's put it that way. Less negative net worth. And the third thing is your, your current first property is now a line of credit because you have equity in it. So you now have an automatic line of credit. The fourth reason is if you're in a market that it's hot, like GTA Toronto, it will just go up and up and up. Hopefully, if you're not hitting a bubble. But by the time that you, let's say, are moving out to another bigger home or whatever it is, you hope that you have built enough equity that even if the property drops by 20, 25, 30%, you're still in the positive, right? This becomes your first rental property, right? Because the moment you move into another home, that other home becomes your primary residence. And this first home that you bought automatically becomes your investment property. So you now can rent it out and and get cash flow income from it. And so for all those reasons, I'm like, yeah, it's great. It's really good. It's wonderful. And when it was time to make that decision, I took the advice of the book. Uh, and I'm so glad I did. So one tip for people who wants to invest in real estate, uh, or at least, you know, a, a young person, burgeoning real estate investor, never sell your first home. Great. So, wow. Well, that's, that was very um, forward thinking of you. And I think that's a tough thing to do for, for most people because you have to come up with another down payment. But the fact Absolutely. is you were able to do it. And obviously it turned out super well for you. I guess you could always borrow from the first property to come up with a down payment uh, is is another tool uh, on your next property but uh, but that is that is great advice if you're interested in real estate uh, and you see that as a you know and you like the idea of it then uh, you know I think that makes that makes great sense and, and yeah that's uh, thanks for that insight. Well, I wanted to ask you a, a different question, um, just something that that is, uh, you know, important now and, and relevant now. I mean, with with house prices so high, you know, and these it's, you know, people are trying to make these decisions. Do I do I uh, continue as a renter? Do I buy? You know, um, is there a, a wise one answer that, you know, Buying is always better. Renting is better. You know, what's your take on it? You know, like everything in life and also in medicine, the most appropriate answer is it depends. Uh, And it depends on many factors. Let me uh, bring the group to a wonderful book. And I've said it before, I don't have any financial interest in this book. I don't get any sponsorship. I wish I did, but I don't get any sponsorship from the author or the book. 
And the author is Robert Kiyosaki. And his book is Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And the reason I, I mentioned this book is because the common belief, uh, you and I and everyone, the common belief is that a home is an asset, right? We spend an hour talking about why the home is an asset. And then if you read his book, a home is not an asset. Like it's totally flip your thinking upside down. A home is an expense and it's not an asset. Why? Because you have to pay mortgage, which means you have to pay to the bank. You have to pay property tax. You have to pay insurance. You have to pay all that. So all that is, is gone, is, is sunk cost. Now, some of you may argue, yes, it's an investment, but hear me out. He sees it very differently. He sees it as an expense. So the reason I bring this concept up is because to answer your question, do I rent, do I buy, really depends on which philosophy you want to adopt. And also, as you were saying, you know, coming out of, you know, whatever program and now you're a new brand new grad and you're a new professional and, and you're working and you're a single income or double income professional income. And these homes are still out of your reach because home prices in, in the GTA are so crazy that is it worth for me to put my money into one asset like a home or should I rent and put my money into another type of asset? So remember we talked about options and alternatives and opportunity cost. So if I put my money into a home Therefore, I have no money to invest in stocks, bonds, mutual funds, uh, REITs, uh, ETFs, whatever, right? Uh, and you and I know that this year, it was a crazy year. Everybody's been telling me they, they, uh, their value of their portfolio increased by 40%, right? Because it's been a crazy year. So let me ask you this. If you had a dollar today, would you invest in a in a basket of portfolios that increase by 40% or would you put that dollar towards a home that increased 7%? Right? Yeah, I, I think that's a fair question, but when you're right, it's it's a nuanced answer. The only thing, you know, my portfolio didn't increase by 40%. I think most people's portfolio have not increased by 40%. So you may be cherry picking there. I, I am uh, definitely cherry picking. And and I and I said 40% because I, I took my kids, you know, Hongbao money, you know, Hongbao money is red envelope money, you know, that they get at their birthday or New Year's and whatnot. I took their money and I invested in a mutual fund. That's all I did. Right. And uh, we got the statement last night and my wife pointed to 46%. I'm like, you mean $46, right? It increased by $46. And I looked carefully at it and it's no, it's in 2020, it increased by 46%. Is that a fluke? Absolutely. Will I get it year after year? No. But <laughs> it's just to point out the fact that if you're putting a dollar into a real estate investment, you're not putting a dollar into another type of investment. So whatever that may be of your liking. So that's the opportunity cost. So if you are the type of person that believes what Robert Kiyosaki is saying, that an, a house is not an asset, then you probably will choose to rent for a long, long time before you, you buy a home as a primary residence? Will you buy a home as a real estate investment? Then again, that's depending on what type of return you want, what type of risk you want, um, how, how active, how passive do you want to be? And uh, what is the commitment? If I invest into a real estate, there is commitment for the next 25 years. If I invest in a portfolio tomorrow, I can change it. And I can sell it off and, and invest all in GICs, right? And, and so the answer, it really, it depends. That being said, if you, if you take that Robert Kiyosaki perspective, he's not saying never buy a house. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is uh, a home is not an asset. So use your money wisely. Use your money in the, in the way that you want to use it to build your net worth. That, that was his point is build your net worth, understand the opportunity cost. And if it means that you need to rent now, 
so that you build out your net worth and buy the home in the future, that's also a good strategy versus take that dollar and buy the real estate now and invest later, right? So it really depends one on your strategy, your comfort, and also the human aspect is very important. How do I feel about having my own house, my own four walls, and, and a roof over my head, how, how much importance do I put on that versus I'm renting, but I've got, you know, a million dollars sitting in some portfolio? Like, how do you see that as a person? The psychology of that is very important. And finally, one thing that people, I think, don't take into consideration too much, but they should, is if you're buying a home uh, as a primary residence and you're living there, you understand that you are committed for the next 25 years to that location. Because if you are the type of people or you're in a profession where you have to constantly move or travel, or I'm in Toronto and now I meet my significant other in Vancouver and I bought a home here and now I have to sell it. Uh, you know, the costs associated with that constant move, buy, sell, legal costs, land transfer tax, et cetera, et cetera is that a good investment in the short term, right? And so you have to think that maybe in the short term is better to rent, in the long term better to buy. But if you are in the phase in your career where there is still a potential that you may move because I just graduated, uh, I found a, a work at, you know, at RBC in Toronto, uh, but I know that it's not very stable and two years from now, I may have to move to you know, RBC in Montreal uh, is this still a good time to buy? Or is it is it time for just me to think about the, the opportunity cost, think about all the other costs associated, and maybe it's just better to rent now. So again, coming back to the answer, it, it really depends. And it depends on so many more factors than just financial. Well, that's, that's great. I like, I like the way how you how you put that and that. And I think it's a little bit uh, heartening and encouraging. And I agree that, you know, while it's nice, a lot of people strive to have to own their, let's say their own primary residence, you know, and that's a great goal. I don't think we should be despondent if we rent for a period of time or, or even for our whole lives, if we choose to do that. I, I think that the keys and one of the key you were alluding to is that if you have a plan where you take that excess revenue in terms of the difference between what you pay for rent versus the difference in what you would pay for mortgage, you know, interest, um, insurance, maintenance, uh, taxes, yada, yada, yada. You take that difference and you invest it in forced savings, whatever that is, and it requires discipline, then, then you should probably more or less end up at the same place, give or take, um, over time. Okay? Unless you're making 40%. Unless you're making 40% in your portfolio or 40% in the housing market. If either one is out of whack over a long period of time, yes. So, um, so, so the point being, I don't think we should be despondent. I think, I think you know, one of the key messages, this is a great tool for forced savings, but if you can, you can diligently save other ways through rent, I think that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a reasonable way to go about it, either for the short or the long term. Ooh, I learned a tremendous amount from you today. Uh, thanks for thanks for having that discussion. Hope our hope your your uh, your listeners learned some stuff too. But the thing I learned the most today, the pearl I learned the most today, is basically it's much better being a healthcare provider asking the questions than the patient answering them. So thank oh. you for giving that me that opportunity to ask the questions. So, uh, Dr. Bob, I, I hope my answers were satisfactory because I was really uh, shitting my pants as I was answering. So felt like a medical student all over again. Okay. Now you know how your guests feel, Vus. It gives you some great perspective. Absolutely. All right, thanks a lot. That was lots of fun. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was great fun being the interviewee, especially being interviewed by Bob, uh, my, very, my very good friend. Uh, we've been together in the merge uh, for at least 20 years. So it's been a pleasure to have him as the host this time around. And as you can tell, Bob is also very sophisticated in his knowledge of personal finance. 
I want to take this opportunity to also advertise my next webinar, which is on September 17th of this year. So it's an all day seminar webinar on uh, financial literacy for healthcare professionals, empower your future self. And you can go on to my website uh, to have a look at that and to register. So the website is again, beautifultimesinc.ca forward slash conference and workshops. So again, beautifultimesinc.ca forward slash conference and workshops. If you want to reach out to me, you can go on to my new website, financialhealthdoc.com. Again, it is financialhealthdoc.com or email me at hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. One more time, it is hmfhd2020 at gmail.com. This episode is sponsored by another Emerge doc, Dr. Fred Voon, who just came out with a new book called Your Inside Guide to the Emergency Department and How to Prevent Having to Go. We hear the same questions and complaints in waiting rooms coast to coast. The book answers them. People want to know how they can stay out of the emergency department and how to get seen and get out as quickly as possible. Dr. Voon takes 15 years of experience and puts it into this book that you will want to give to your family and friends. So he's giving away books to the first five Canadians that respond on his website, drvoon.ca. That's D-R-V-O-O-N dot C-A. And to every 50th Canadian until the promotion expires. Link is in the show notes. You can buy his book online, special order it, or at your local bookstore, or ask your local library to add it to their collection. How is My Financial Health Doc podcast is hosted by Dr. Vukit Tran. Dr. Tran is a physician with a special interest in personal financial security and wealth education. Dr. Tran does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through this financial podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. Please confer with your advisor, lawyer, or accountant for specific advice.